0: Thank you.
1: In solidarity, A deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm your host, one of your hosts, Joe Ramsey, live streaming, Zooming, and eventually YouTubing with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, on the south side of Boston. Here we are in the fall of 2020, this crazy year, and we at Shelter and Solidarity, after 22 weeks of weekly broadcast, have shifted to a twice-month schedule. To continue our new radical education project in the academic year, many of us also working as teachers in higher education, as some of you are, I'm sure, as well. Here, our show on September 24th, our 23rd episode of Shelter and Solidarity, is focused on the topic of weaponizing anti-Semitism allegations and the proper response to such allegations. Amid a resurgence of xenophobic nationalism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and racism more generally, how do we on the movement for so, within the movement for social justice respond and refute charges of reckless charges of anti-Semitism that are broadly being leveled against advocates for black liberation, immigrant justice, and national self-determination for the Palestinian people? Today, to help us navigate these questions, we are joined by two terrific guests. And we are also joined by our co-producer Suren Mudliar, who will be playing the role of lead discussant, helping us to delve into the important questions and issues related to this topic. Suren, welcome to the front of the camera one more time on Shelter in Solidarity.
2: Thank you, Joe. You know, I'd like to follow up on your introduction by pointing out that we, we certainly live in a time of rising xenophobia and racist movements. And these correspond to four decades of the state retreating from its promises tearing away at the social safety nets. Even while corporations are rolling back on working class gains and reneging on the promise of opening doors to excluded communities. The forceful destruction of left wing parties and projects have cleared the field for chauvinistic responses in recent years we've seen horrific violence directed at communities of color, Muslims, Jewish communities, and GLBTQ communities. All of this, of course, has seen epic fightbacks, including on the terrain of nationalism itself, where oppressed communities have fought back by embracing identities imposed on them and developing the strands of new emancipatory projects including through modest instruments like ethnic studies programs, affirmative action, and the opening of once exclusive fields of of employment. Crucially, there have also been cross-ethnic, multicultural alliances. And in a sense, especially in California, a sense of third world unity, especially when we recall now the nearly, more than 50-year-old third world liberation front strikes of 1968. 1969. Moving forward is meant also the building of an incipient politics of convergence around questions of gender and class, a new universalizing politics based on this multiculturalism. You could call it a calling in culture of alliances and movement building, even before the present multiracial African American led uprising one such opening occurred in california around uh, around well within the educational arena the ethnic studies model curriculum in a very different context in the united kingdom the rebuilding of the labor movement after decades of Thatcherism in the labor party itself you know has came about through the leadership of jeremy corbyn who, who recognized a multicultural working class And yet both these projects have been derailed by complex issues, including among them, salient charges of anti-Semitism. Indeed, for those of us who see class-based politics as providing one of the binding forces, uniting people uh, in the struggle for racial and gender justice, we've also, of course, had to name and challenge capital. And with it, Despite our principled advocacy, it's often equated with anti-Semitic tropes. To better understand the processes at work and the organizations animating these claims, we turn to Lara Kiswani of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, and Leslie Williams of, the, of Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, before delving into these issues, I'd like to ask Lara and Leslie to tell us a little about themselves and their organizations Later in the course of the conversation, I'm sure that we'll also learn more about the communities to which they feel accountable and the core issues that they address. Immediately though, Lara, please tell us about Lara and AROC.
3: Thank you so much for having me as part of the show and also for addressing this really critical issue. Um, As again, my name is Lara Kiswani, and I am the executive director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center. I'm also a faculty member in the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University. Um, I'm Palestinian, uh, daughter of refugees born and raised in the United States. And um, at AROC, we fight for liberated and, and dignified Arab communities from here to our homelands and we understand our liberation. As inextricably linked to the liberation of all oppressed people. So we serve poor and working class Arab and Muslim immigrants and organize our community to build power and to overturn the social systems perpetuating forced migration, racism, exploitation, and US imperialism.
2: Thank you, Laura. Leslie, do you want to tell us a little about yourself and about Jewish Voice for Peace?
4: Thank you so much, sir, and I'm I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, So, I'm Leslie Williams, I'm in the Chicago area, and I'm on the Coordinating Committee for Jewish Voice for Peace Chicago. Um, I am both African American and Jewish, and yes, that is an identity that does really exist. Uh, And Jewish Voice for Peace is a grassroots organization with 60 chapters across the United States of people, primarily Jewish, who are dedicated to changing U.S. policy around Israel and Palestine, to achieve a just and lasting peace, but based on principles of international law. And we're the first major Jewish group to demand that the American military aid be withheld until Israel Israel ends the occupation. And we're also one of the few Jewish groups that supports the boycott, divest, sanctions movement. And we oppose political Zionism because we feel it's counter to the ideals of justice, equality, and freedom for all people that we stand for.
2: Thank you, Leslie. I'd like to turn to California though, before we look at the um, state of Israel and its influence, Uh, I guess, going in both directions on US politics and vice versa. But um, I'd like to turn to California, which I think in in national consciousness has been shaped by the the flames that we've seen recently. But going before that to to an earlier period, The ADL has been a significant player in California politics. Uh, It's also had significant run-ins with communities of color, especially around in the 1990s, um, the spying on anti-apartheid, in this case, referring to apartheid in South Africa. And and so the ADL has a, a mixed relationship with communities of color, at least in California. In recent years though, there's been a kind of social democratic revival in California, almost harkening back to the 1950s kind of class compact that existed, except now a very multicultural one. One of the tools that seemed to emerge to to propel this force in some ways prefiguring what the United States could look like was the development of an ethnic studies model curriculum Lara, that's something that you have a lot of experience dealing with. Can you introduce that to us?
3: Yeah, and just to say thank you for also contextualizing ADL's long history of surveillance of anti-racist organizations. Um, AROC's predecessor, we come out of the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, so we were ADC San Francisco before we got, evolved into AROC, and ADCSF was one of the organizations that was infiltrated by ADL, um, which was part of the scandal that was exposed in 1993 that you reference. Um, so we have a long history with dealing both with Zionist repression and in particular with the ADL and the Jewish Community Relations Council, which in the Bay Area and in California work hand in hand, um, especially as it relates to um, silencing pro-Palestinian um, activism and solidarity. Um, so with the ethnic studies model curriculum, you know, as you mentioned, this comes from a long history of third world solidarity. Um, really building on the work that ethnic studies practitioners and communities of color have laid the groundwork for to advocate for ethnic studies, not only in the higher ed, but to be able to bring it into K through 12 schools. So in 2016, there was an assembly bill 2016 that passed, which essentially mandated the state of California after years of advocacy. Again, we always have to remember these policies don't come out of nowhere. It comes from really grassroots organizing and movement building. Um, So after years of advocacy and organizing by ethnic studies practitioners and communities, they passed this bill, which sanctioned the state to come up with a model curriculum, which is now the Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum for California. They brought together um, over a dozen um, experts to come together to write this curriculum. And they were called the Ethnic Studies uh, Model Curriculum Advisory Committee. Um, And together, they worked um, as volunteers mostly for uh, over several months to come up with a curriculum that was rooted and grounded in the values and principles of the Ethnic Studies discipline. Um, and to share that as a draft to be deliberated by the California Department of Education. Going hand in hand and you don't wanna get too much in the technicalities with an assembly bill 331 which would mandate ethnic studies as a high school requirement. So there were multiple pieces moving, which would essentially try to advance this idea that social justice curriculum, and in particular, centralizing or centering the communities marginalized, racialized, and indigenous communities in the US and their struggles and social movements is part and parcel of, of social justice right now, and also necessary for the well-being of all people, young people, um, not just people of color. Um, so once that curriculum that they developed this draft model curriculum went public, it was open for public comment like any other process. What shifted from there on out, which was last August when it went public, is that there was a very concerted effort by pro Israeli interest groups to silence to stop that curriculum from moving forward um, and to actually attack the curriculum as a whole. And we were brought in early on to address this because of our history with both challenging Zionist repression in educational spaces because AROC runs youth programs in high schools and we faced direct attacks trying to actually stop our programming altogether um, in in different school districts at the hands of ADL and JCRC. And we come from a rooted history in ethnic studies and education work. Um, We realized very early on that the attack was specifically on the fact that the, the writers of the curriculum, the advisory committee, had decided to include Arab American studies under the module of Asian American studies following decades long tradition in higher education um where arab american studies departments programs professors have found themselves housed in asian american studies disciplines um so they decided to, to include that as part of the draft model curriculum the, and within that you know draft model curriculum of course you can't talk about social justice you can't talk about the arab american experience especially within the lens of ethnic studies which is rooted in anti-colonialism without talking about Palestine and the, and the colonization of Palestine. Um, so at, directly targeted was the inclusion of Arab American studies, the inclusion of Palestine, um, and this argument that in some way, shape or form, Jewish students would be harmed by this and that this was inherently anti-Semitic. Um, and so from there on out, we found ourselves in an uphill battle trying to make a case that who, who gets to dictate first and foremost what ethnic studies is? Ethnic studies, as you know, since 1968 struggle and strike is rooted in self-determination, right? So now you have these outside interest groups dictating what that'll be. And so we've been since last August to now, and now we are in September 2020, um, they've have prolonged the process, they have shifted the terrain um, and really made this about, who gets to dictate ethnic studies and pro-Israeli interest groups, namely ADL, the JCRC are making this about what is the definition of antisemitism that's included? What Jewish experiences are included? We should have a lesson plan on Jewish experience. And first and foremost, there should be no criticism of Israel. So that is really at the heart of it, right? So the heart of all of this battle is this question of Is ethnic studies a discipline that is supposed to be self-determined? And is Palestine part of that discipline? And lastly, does it warrant a criticism of Israel? Now all that to say, and I'll end by just saying that this attack on Arab American studies and on Palestine essentially became an attack on the entire curriculum and the entire discipline. Because of the Israeli attacks, the pro-Israeli interest groups, ADL and otherwise, and they're coalescing with other right-wing, organizations to attack this ethnic studies model curriculum. The revisions that CDE ended up providing as um, a public for public comment in September ultimately gutted the entire curriculum. It lost all the values and pedagogy of ethnic studies. It was no longer rooted in anti-racism. Structural racism was not mentioned once. Anti-colonialism was completely stripped away. It became more of a multiracial, multicultural studies um, and what the writers of the curriculum have deemed an all lives matter curriculum.
2: I see. So Laura, I know that you were definitely not surprised by this, or you probably were not surprised by this. Uh, Leslie, should Laura have been surprised by this response or is it typical of the kinds of things that have happened elsewhere?
4: Uh, She should not have been surprised because this has been the ADL's playbook for many, many years. I think it's really important to remember that despite the ADL's propaganda, they are really an Israeli advocacy organization first and the civil rights organization very, 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 very much second. And if those values are in conflict, whenever there's a case where they feel that defending Israel is at risk, their supposed commitment to civil rights is going to go completely out the window. So, you know, you mentioned this happening in California, but it's happened in a lot of places other than California. So for example, in New Orleans in 2017, there was a city council ordinance that was going to create a a human rights screening for the city business. Uh, The resolution would encourage the creation of a process to review the city's contracts and investments to remove any contracts that were involved in human rights violations or with entities that were involved in human rights violations. And similar to ethnic studies, This was a multiracial coalition working on this. Uh, There were Black Lives Matter organizers. There were Native Americans from the No No Dakota Access Pipeline Solidarity Program. Uh, There were Jews, there were Muslims. Amnesty International supported it. There were LGBTQ activists that supported it. So it really was a progressive coalition representing many, many different organizations. However, the Anti-Defamation League mobilized several of these pro-Israel organizations, the same ones that Lara is talking about, to oppose the human rights ordinance. And the only reason they were opposing it was because they felt that this ordinance would support the boycott, divest, sanctions movement, that it would criticize any kind of Israeli human rights, that it would endanger any any types of contracts with Israel or Israeli organizations, And so they opposed the human rights ordinance. And unfortunately they were successful. So even though the city council had passed this resolution unanimously, based on the pressure they were receiving from the Anti-Defamation League, from Jewish federations, et cetera, um, they reversed the decision and they rescinded the human rights ordinance. So you have something that truly was going to work on human rights for people of color, for LGBTQ people, for immigrants and it was scuttled because the Anti-Defamation League uh, was opposed to it because they saw it as critical of Israel.
2: So this sort of my, my way or the highway approach is very much an inversion of the popular media narrative though, right? Wherein it's always the left waging a culture war and suppressing people from their free speech. They're not that we, we are we are policing the speech of others, and yet we see these very concrete examples here of how the right and the Zionist forces are able to police our speech, I, I want to uh, shift the conversation a little though. Uh, oftentimes these things are parceled off as the culture wars, something that's affecting a group of intellectuals it plays out in. In newspapers and journals or even on television, but it doesn't affect real world communities and yet from the examples you've just cited and what Lara has told us about. There are real world people who can be impacted will be impacted by these curricula what has been the cost of delay Lara? Of the ethnic studies model curriculum? Is it just something that affected, you said, CDE, the California Department of Education?
3: Well, you know, as always, education affects the young people the most in the families um, at the receiving end of it. And, you know, just um, coincidentally, our our youth program, the Arab Youth Organizing, um, came out with a study called Turak, Teaching, Understanding, Representation of Arabs Throughout History, in May of this year after a couple years of surveying the community, doing listening circles with young people and surveying young Arab Americans in high schools around their representation in high schools. And one of the recommendations they came up with was last fall around having more Arab American studies, having an inclusion of ethnic studies in, in the schools. and. Um, And and similarly, years back, our youth program came up with a similar report with one of the recommendation being having Arabic language offered as a second language in schools and we organized to make that possible. Um, At the end of the day, when these targeted attacks happen, it doesn't only, and this is really important for us as a community to, to name for others listening in. It doesn't just impact Arab youth who absolutely are targeted by Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism. We can list, you know, the the statistics around how little information, and I'll link the TuRaTh report in, in um, for you all in the chat, around like how much little information young people received in high schools about Arab American stories and culture and history, about the hate, hate the hate violence they faced in schools, the discrimination and racism they face from teachers, right? All of that is real. But when these kinds of attacks happen, it doesn't just impact Arab Americans and Muslims and young Arab immigrants, it also impacts all young people, right? So at the end of the day, the attack on this ethnic studies model curriculum, which should have been implemented by now, is now that we are waiting in 2020 under this Trump administration, dealing with this racialized pandemic ongoing rebellions because of policing and, and violence and um, you know a heightened consciousness across the United States and the world of anti-Black racism in this country, we are now stalling an ethnic studies curriculum. We are stalling the ability for teachers to be equipped to actually address questions that they're all coming to terms with in their classrooms, in the world, on Zoom, around how am I going to address these questions that our young people are seeing every day in the world? And they're not equipped to do this because the the practitioners and experts who developed this curriculum that was rooted in a in a practice and a discipline that has its history in challenging those systems of oppression, that actually addressing and undoing the wrath of that that oppression, is now being stalled because pro-Israeli interest groups are concerned that criticism of Israel will hurt a colonial project. It makes you wonder what year are we in, right? And at the end of the day, so now we have a stalled ethnic studies curriculum, And to make it worse, a stalled bill, which now was supposed to happen within the next few years, AB 331, to make ethnic studies mandatory in high schools, the Jewish caucus, ADL, the Jewish federations and pro-Israeli interest groups have succeeded in changing that bill to not be implemented until 2029. I mean, just to have to fathom like the influence they have, but it's not just about oh, they're controlling things and influencing other people. There's shared interests here, right? We have shared interests between white supremacists and Zionists, we have shared interests between the United States and Israel, and this is how it plays on a really local level. And absolutely the direct impact are the young people, just like when ADL and JCRC succeeded installing AROC programming throughout San Francisco Unified School District for three years, because they put us under investigation for anti-Semitism. The only organization providing air Arab youth programming in the entire district was told we are going to stall your programming for three years under a Trump administration because we were Um, alleged to have been anti-Semitic because we were teaching our Palestinian students and Arab students to be proud of their identity, right? Um, This is the impact it has on the ground, but also I always wanna remind our folks, it's not just about Arabs, right? We are part of a fabric of communities that are at the receiving end of oppression and exploitation and ethnic studies as a discipline and undoing that racism and oppression is really to benefit everybody. And who, who actually ends up paying the price are our young people, our working class people, our poor people, are all those who end up having to face and deal with this as a lived reality on a daily basis.
2: Laura, you know, our our host, Joe Ramsey, has a, a huge amount of experience on a campus with an urban mission to address just these kinds of questions. And I know that he has a a question and a comment to put to, to both you and Leslie and more generally to the rest of us. Joe, do you want to join us? Please? Yes,
1: thank you. Thank you, Siren. Um, And I do want to mention that for everyone who's on this call live, uh, we will be uh, opening up usually about 45 minutes to an hour into the show. We welcome your questions and comments. If you'd like to indicate what your question is or just that you have one in the chat box, the live chat box, we will monitor that and be sure to bring you into the conversation once we get to that point. Um, but at the moment, I, I wanted to, I mean, based particularly responding to, to, uh, to Laura's comments, first off, I just want to say that the work, uh, the ethnic studies, the curriculum reform uh, work that you, you seem to be involved in is sounds very inspiring. I know at UMass Boston, there are some who in, in the wake of the recent um, summer of protest and rage in the face of police murders of, of, of Black people across this country, uh, there's been calls for, you know, making uh, African Africana studies courses mandatory, right? I mean, there's been, you know, this is at least the kind of discussion that's in the air and, it, and, and it's really exciting to, to hear about similar efforts at the K-12 level as well as higher ed. Um, my uh, comment is that, um, you know, I, I've just this week, the first couple of weeks of classes, I've been introducing a couple of my students to the work of Howard Zinn uh, in one of the, co- I teach a course on the history of Boston. I actually use some of Seren's own co-edited book in that, in that course. And I was really struck just earlier today at how few students had even been introduced to basic history of Columbus and his treatment of the Arawak, right? I mean, I guess I, after the recent movements and the tearing down of monuments, I had kind of lulled myself into thinking, wow, you know, probably students are getting this more than they were a few years ago in high school. But I was actually quite, you know, uh, confirmed or I mean, a little bit astonished, but then reconfirmed. That in fact students are coming out of, of high schools a lot of time without any kind of detailed understanding of what co- colonization actually entailed, beyond just you know some very vague passive voice sentences about people disappearing or you know and so forth things being done. And so I just I just find your work very inspiring. I feel like it's still very much necessary. And I guess my question is a little narrower. I mean, it seems to me that um, is there a way in which the the, the Zionist lobbies and um, and those who are attacking these these uh, these progressive curriculum reforms are in fact kind of trying to appropriate a left or at least a liberal rhetoric. You know, we think back to the '60s and or at least some of the, the ways the '60s has survived, if not the '60s themselves, in this notion that like that Jewish students, based on their identity, you know, would be somehow harmed by being exposed to uh, discussions of Palestine, discussions of Arab American or Arab history or experience. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the way that this rhetoric of kind of um, sensitivity, right? Is kind of involved in this discourse. I mean, clearly, it can be invoked in many different ways it's kind of a form that can be filled out with different content but it struck me uh Laura and and maybe in maybe in Leslie's comments too that there's a little bit of this playing on this sense of of the vulnerable you know a kind of almost like kind of victim narrative right that is that is invoked here is we must pre- prevent students from being traumatized by difficult knowledge except they're they're kind of mobilizing against right against a kind of anti-colonial uh kind of racial social justice project. I wonder if you have any thoughts on the, the on the way that rhetoric is is that a, is that a, is that a prominent kind of trope in the way that these reactions uh, these reactionary campaigns are unfolding or is that just one of many strategies on their part.
4: So I would say that one thing that I've noticed over and over again uh, particularly on college campuses is that the anti-defamation league or other pro-Israel groups will say that Uh, Jewish students are afraid. Jewish students are being made to feel unsafe. And what they generally mean by that, first of all, they don't really mean Jewish students, they mean very actively pro-Israel students. Um, But what they mean by that is that somebody has challenged them, that there's been an Israeli Apartheid Week program, that Students for Justice in Palestine have been standing up and going to their events and saying, look, you're not talking about colonialism, you're not talking about Um, the the thousands of people who lost their homes during the Nakba to create the state of Israel. And so being exposed to this different attitude is what they consider to be frightening. So for example, here in Chicago at Loyola, um, Jewish students claim that Palestinian students were making the campus an unsafe environment because a Palestinian student had a Palestinian flag displayed in his dorm room window. And because of that, the Palestinian student was disciplined for making this an unsafe environment for Jewish students. So yes, I think there definitely is a narrative that being exposed to to Palestinians at all, being exposed to the existence of Palestinians is somehow threatening. And unfortunately we see that at the high school level as well. Uh, So here in the high schools around my area, north of Chicago, there was a group of students, A so students organized against racism, a multiracial group, African-American students, white students, Latinx students, Muslim students, uh, and they would get together and discuss issues of racism. And they wanted to discuss Israel and Palestine, uh, but uh, some of the students in the school's pro-Israel organization found out about it. They talked to the local Jewish Federation, they talked to the Anti-Defamation League and the school shut down the discussion. They told these teenagers that they did not have the capacity to discuss Israel and Palestine. And they were actually forbidden from holding a discussion on Israel and Palestine anywhere on the school grounds. And they even talked about doing it as an after-school event where they were not actually at the school. And they were told there could be no high school discussion of Israel-Palestine because they did not have the capacity to do that. So what is that saying? First of all, um, the lack of knowledge and education about the Middle East and US foreign relations in general is going to be impoverished if you have this attitude that even hearing about Palestine or seeing a Palestinian is going to be threatening. Um, but the other thing is, if you turned any of these definitions around, you know, what if Palestinians said, you know, I'm sorry, but this talk of Israel and any talk about Israel is triggering to me and makes me feel unsafe. Uh, why is it that that is never considered a reasonable response? And yet it's always considered reasonable for pro-Israel students to say, well, just talking about Palestine makes me feel unsafe. Hmm.
1: Kind of a one-way trigger, I guess. Yeah, thank you, very very interesting to, to hear this. Thank, thanks, Saren, for letting me in there.
2: Oh Back no, to- yep. You know, I I want to pick this up a little bit. Uh, There are a number of different directions I'd like to go, but the last point made about people being told that there are certain issues that are just too complex for young people to discuss. It fits in really well with the overall imperial posture of the United States as a a power in the global sphere in other words that not only shouldn't young people be talking about These complex matters of foreign policy and international relations, but in general, the American public should not be talking about it. And, you know, I guess a famous debate in recent years is that has been the debate over the so called Israel lobby and which way we point the arrows, you know, is Israel merely a projection of u.s interests in the middle east or is the u.s state having the u.s dog having being wagged by its israeli tail that kind of debate i'm i'm wondering leslie how do you navigate these issues thinking about the overall situation of israel in the middle east and the general power structure within the united states how are we to think about this and how are we to To sort of demystify, you know, claims of uh, disproportionate Jewish influence versus actual organized Zionism.
4: Yes, well I think it's good that as you said that there's a distinction between quote-unquote Jewish influence and Zionist influence because I think it is very important to make that distinction. Um, I think one of the campaigns, that Jewish Voice for Peace with quite a few other organizations has worked on for a long time, I think is kind of a response to your question. And that's uh, something we call the deadly exchange campaign. And deadly exchange looks at the way that the US military industrial complex and the Israeli military industrial complex are entwined. And the way that forces of militarization and arms dealing, and essentially state power used to squelch um, the voices of anti-colonialists and the voices of people of color, how those interests intertwine. And so for example, many US police departments and um, ICE agents receive training from the Israeli military. And it's not so much that they're exchanging tactics, but it's that both sides are kind of encouraging each other in the sense of the military and the police taking on a very aggressive and what becomes a very racialized form of control of local populations. And um, this is one thing where really it's very interesting to look at how the ADL presents itself as being a guardian or the defender of civil rights when the ADL has often celebrated some of these state actors that are pushing this sort of militarized surveillance and aggression on local populations. So the Anti-Defamation League or Anti-Defamation Chap- League chapters have given awards to Michael Chertoff who created the stop and frisk program. And they've given awards to the um, St. Louis Police Department a year after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And so to be saying that you're a civil rights organization but you're going to hold up as a model, someone like the St. Louis police department, which had a very aggressive, very militarized policing response to the death of Michael Brown shows that inherent contradiction. And uh, so the deadly exchange campaign, we look at both how Israel takes some less than savory tactics such as the stop and frisk technique in New York back to Israel, but also how encouraging U.S. police officers to visit Israel and Israel and to train with Israeli police and Israeli um, army kind of encourages this idea that this is a good thing, that this is the way to do good policing. And so, of course, this is very much an assault on people of color, especially African-Americans here in the United States. And when African-Americans in the United States have tried to critique this, uh, they are often labeled with this anti-Semitism canard. So recently, for example, um, the, the Anti-Defamation League loves to talk about how they're great pop, um, partners with the NAACP. Uh, but in Massachusetts recently, the head of the local Massachusetts NAACP spoke out at an anti, um, anti-policing rally about the effect of US police training with Israel and questioned why this should be. And suddenly the Anti-Defamation League became much less friendly to the NAACP when uh, they heard him say that. And there's a very condescending, a very paternalistic attitude that you'll often hear in these circumstances. So he was told that he clearly did not understand the situation, that once again, it was too complex for him to understand and that uh, it was really a pity that someone from the NAACP was being distracted by uh, what was going on in Israel, when we should really be focusing on what's going on in the United States. And that's something that you hear from the Anti-Defamation League and from other pro-Israel organizations whenever people of color critique them. So, you know, of course we've seen attacks on Michelle Alexander and Cornell West and Angela Davis and Marco Mott Hill whenever they have raised these issues. Um, so, you know, the idea that um, the Anti-Defamation League is somehow a supporter of African American rights when they are so involved in pushing this international militaristic form of policing is just a really unbearable form of hypocrisy, in my opinion.
3: If I could just add that um, in addition to this question of the ADL and the Israeli lobby, I think it is always important to ground our understanding of US foreign policy in US imperialism. Um, So decisions aren't made because they're pressured by any particular lobby. So if we extract the Israeli lobby, if you extract ADLs, would it be that Israel would no longer be instrumental to the role of US imperialism globally? We would argue not. Um, And would it mean that perhaps the question is, the, the formation, transformation, development of these pro-Israeli interest groups and lobbies are a direct result in response to the shared interests of the settler colonial project of Israel and the settler colonial project of the United States. Um, And so there is, you know, understanding that capitalism always needs new frontiers to build out and extract more capital. And in order to do so, they need war um, because people don't willingly give up their land and resources and Israel is an, an example of that, but not just Israel, the entire Arab region, we would argue is an example of that. The entire third world is an example of that. And so ultimately, there is shared interest. And so even talking about deadly exchange and the, the relationship between U.S. police and Israeli military and law enforcement, is not, the problem there isn't that Israel is training police. The problem is global militarism and policing. And what does it mean if we take it up as a task to actually challenge that and chip away at it? So for us, what we are asking today is not necessarily to say that we want to challenge apartheid Israel and the role of Israel and Zionist repression in challenging black and brown organizing here in the United States and globally, and further militarizing and and emboldening policing globally. We're not doing that because we think Israel is the problem. We think the entire structure and system of policing and militarism and imperialism is the problem. And if we're able to take on Israel and apartheid Israel, we're doing that in service of all people at the receiving end of imperialism and militarism and policing. So it's both and in terms of our adversaries have shared interests and they're sharing tactics and strategies and resources and, and, and all kinds of other things as we know. And it's on us to do the same, right? So I think that sometimes we get caught up with this question of the Israeli lobby or not the Israeli lobby that totally dismisses the struggle of indigenous people of North America and what they had to endure as a result of settler colonialism here. That history is not gone, that's not past, that's also very present. And so in order to understand that, then we have to see who else is United States partnering with globally. And yes, absolutely, they're going to find partners in other settler colonial projects and namely the state of Israel.
2: You know, one of the things I'm most grateful for hearing from both you, Lara, and from Leslie's earlier comments is you've given us a methodology and a language for thinking about and talking about this topic, one that gets us away from talking about large social groups such as the Jewish community or this or that people and allow us to focus on particular institutions and practices and the, the entire US imperial state I'm wondering, uh, and and this is one of many different directions we could take uh, before going to uh, involving up friends in the audience. I know Michael Passerini has a story about Newton, Massachusetts that he could share with us. But before doing that, one could argue that we're, sign- we're singling out Israel, but you've debunked that by talking about the entire Middle East, the entire Third World. And, uh, and yet there are some special roles in which Israeli-based institutions do play. For example, the training of police forces, the development of the surveillance state, and um, the processing of passport documents throughout the world are, are, are these activities are carried out by particular Israel-based companies and uh, the training of the Colombian military, Salvadoran military. There are certain special relationships there. Um, How are we to address this without sounding as if we are challenging a Jewish people?
3: Well, I would just start by saying there's no, reason to shy away from challenging apartheid and settler colonialism anywhere. Um, We should not shy away from that. We should be direct about that. Um, And also to say that Israel is not just another state. Israel is a settler colonial project and it's instrumental it's instrumental to U.S. imperialism. And the reason for that, if we understand the role of policing, if we understand the role of of the United States right now and how it manages populations and peoples, Israel has perfected that. I mean, look at Gaza alone in terms of how they use that as a laboratory to to use um, different surveillance technology, weaponry, tactics, war making in in such a small region that's Totally, you know, what many people call an open air prison. Um, And then, further beyond that, just how they've also managed law, how they've used law as a way to manage people and normalize and legalize apartheid and settler colonialism. This is all. these are all great lessons for the United States. And these are all great lessons for authoritarian and repressive regimes across the world, which is why Israel has played an instrumental role in worldwide repression. Um, the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network has a great report on that, documenting the role that Israel has played globally in both equipping, training, and weaponizing different organizations and militias across the world in order to target communities of color. So it is to say that, yes, I understand there's, there's a lot of arguments that our adversaries make to try to debunk our work and to try to actually marginalize and criminalize our work. But I think part of our task is to not shy away from being quite clear around what it is we're up against, right? So we are talking about a settler colonial project. We are talking about apartheid. These aren't things that we named as such. Many people who have gone through various iterations of those kinds of projects have said it themselves. And we are talking about its relationship to the United States, which all of us here in the US understand the US to not play a role that is helpful or, or supportive <laughs> across the world, which is, you know, if you have, if you are an anti-imperialist, if you're an anti-racist, then you want to be critical of the relationships our government is having with other racist institutions and to understand Israel as not just another government. It is, in fact, instrumental. And you know, for us in our region and what we've seen in Yemen and what we've seen in Syria and what we've seen in Palestine, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Iran, and in, in the impact on, in, on Egypt, in Morocco, in Tunisia, in Sudan, across North Africa after the Arab uprisings, all of that, we have to put to question, what role did Israel play? Right. Yeah. And both quelling some of those resistance movements and, 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 and relate in and relating to and partnering with other oppressive regimes in our own region and dictators in our own region, and also normalizing US foreign policy in our region. Right. And so we can talk about the normalization projects that are happening now as an exact indication of that. But that's I would just offer that as another way to understand the question you you raise, because I think it's not just that we're targeting another country. It's to understand relationships. If we want to really map out balances of power, where does the US fall in terms of the world, you know, in terms of world relations and world power? And where does Israel fall? And at the receiving end of that, where do we all fall? And what could be shifted if we understood that differently and actually organize ourselves in order to tackle it in a different way?
4: And I Um, would just like, I would just like to add to that. It's not a coincidence that the white supremacist Richard Spencer is such a big fan of Israel because he's a fan of ethno states. You know, it really, it boggles my mind when people say that, you know, only Israel, that we're making this exception of Israel. We're making an exception of Israel and that we do not hold them to the same human rights standards, which we say we support everywhere else in the world. We don't support ethno states. We don't support countries that base laws on a person's ethnicity or religion. And there are over 50 laws in Israel that differentiate between Palestinians and Jews. So why is it that we are saying that it's all right to uh, support an ethno state like Israel when we say that in general, we support broad-based human rights and that we don't support ethno states. And it's also not a coincidence that Israel is so popular with very right-wing, very fascist, very racist states in uh, Hungary, for example, Orban, or the Hindu parties in India. Uh, As Laura is saying, there is a commonality here of outlook and it is not one that I think people who are progressive should be supporting.
2: Yeah, so there is this right-wing internationalism as it were, and this uh, practice of Apartheid. Now, as you may tell from my accent, I'm actually South African and the word apartheid has a very clear, concrete definition for me. Uh, You alluded to the 50 laws, and I know Joe has a question about those laws.
1: Yeah, I mean, I want to play the naive question asker here, just for those who will be watching this program who may not be uh, familiar with the kind of underlying assumptions and arguments about Israel as an apartheid state. I wondered if, if um, Leslie and Laura perhaps might identify a, a couple of the specific laws or practices. Obviously, 50 is a lot to run through in a couple minutes. Mm-hmm. I also just would make one other comment, which is, I wonder, you know, it seems like there has been perhaps progress in the, in, the, in the Palestinian solidarity movement and maybe on the left in general, in that you can get this far into a conversation among progressives and leftists talking about Israel as an apartheid state without somebody saying, what are you talking about? Because I remember being involved in some of this work over a decade ago and feeling like there was a very steep hill to climb, and I feel like it's a tribute to much of the, the, the long you know work people have done that, that some of these basic you know assertions or, or, or fundamental points are being established more broadly, but still, I think they weren't maybe reconcretizing for those who aren't familiar as we do want to make this an accessible show. So I wondered if you could give us maybe a couple spotlights, uh, Leslie, and maybe Laura would want to add too. Thanks.
4: I mean, the simplest one is not having the right to live wherever you want to live. I mean, that's really the big one. Um, the other one, one of another campaign that JVP is involved with is the No Way to Treat a Child campaign, and it looks at how Palestinian teenagers and children are handled by the Israeli military. So you can have Palestinian boys as young as twelve, in some cases as long as as young as seven, who are arrested and put into Israeli military detention and can be put in Israeli military prisons for three months to a year to two years. And the rules about what happens when an Israeli child is arrested as opposed to a Palestinian child, Israeli children are not put into military detention for things like throwing stones the way Palestinian children are. So that's a really great concrete example that you can have a 10, 12 year old child uh, who will be arrested in the middle of the night, blindfolded, handcuffed, and taken off to a prison where you have no idea where he is if you're Palestinian, whereas that does not happen with Israeli children.
3: And I think we can also point to in 2008, I mean, in 2018, and this is not to say we didn't know about Israel's discrimination of Palestinian citizens prior to that, but they passed the nation state law, right, which essentially enshrined Jewish supremacy over over Palestinians within 1948 Palestine, which is um, what would be known as the State of Israel. What that means is that it, it actually privileged rights um, to only Jewish citizens. So it, it defined Israel as a nation state of the Jewish people. So what does that mean to the over 1 million Palestinians that are living within that state? Right, If it's a state only for Jewish people, it basically legalizes any forms of discrimination to the non-Jewish citizens, namely Palestinians who are living within that region, who can't buy homes, cannot build on their homes, cannot access resources like electricity and water. I mean, I shared in the link a link from Adala, which actually lays out all the different laws within apartheid Israel that really enshrine Jewish supremacy over Palestinians.
2: Thank you. You know, what makes this particularly painful to hear, and we'll go to, um, to the audience in, in a few minutes, um, is that anti-Semitism is real. And we we see we see it uh, around us. I in fact live uh, in a in a building that's a converted old Jewish school, and um, and it's in Chelsea, Massachusetts. And in the 1930s, the the um, anti-communist commissions in the state often pointed to that particular school as a place where uh, they teach the um, uh, what was it called. Where they teach the racial language of the Jews, and they then associated it with with communists, with communists, and um, and, and and that continues. You know, we're approaching today the um, second anniversary in October of the Tree of Life massacre. How are we to approach these challenges of anti-Semitism, all the while um, other forms of Bigotry of oppression are continuing to burgeon around us. I, I read an interesting essay by Leslie on this topic in which And I know it's probably going to be very difficult to to talk about, but I think we have to sort of talk about it in which you you experience a kind of double traumatizing with the tree of life massacre. Leslie, can you tell us about that and, and the rise of anti Semitism today.
4: Um, so I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind with Tree of Life is it was not a coincidence that that particular synagogue was targeted. They were targeted because of their involvement with um, Syrian refugees and because the shooter felt that they were allowing all these Muslims and Syrians into the country. And if you remember the Charlottesville Mass and, you know, the, the white supremacist chanting Jews will not replace us, this has been a frequent... Uh, trope of that white supremacist movement, that part of the reason they object to Jews is because Jews are contributing to the mongrelization of the United States. The Jews are letting in all these non-white people that, that are messing up things for white people in the United States. So um, my essay was called that we can't fight antisemitism and racism separately, uh, because anti-Semitism really is another form of white supremacy. And there is unfortunately an effort, and I think you know, the Anti-Defamation League plays into this as well, of separating them out, of making their, um, this hierarchy that places anti-Semitism at the top and all the other forms of racism are seen as kind of lesser or not as important when in fact they do really work hand in hand. So I think that's one uh, important thing to keep in mind. And um, you know, as an African-American, one thing that I found Um, really kind of disturbing and frankly hurtful in the the largely white Jewish community is that although there is a lot of lip service about concerns for attacks on African-Americans, attacks on people of other ethnic groups, it's really clear that um, within a lot of this mainstream pro-Israel community, um, anti-Semitism is prioritized. And to the extent that um, the other part of this that is very strange is that often um, organizations that are very pro Israel will actually work with anti Semites and will ignore actual anti Semitism if they see the person expressing it as a supporter of Israel. And of course, Trump is the prime example of that. So, you know, Trump has uh, worked with anti Semites, made anti Semitic remarks, hired anti Semites like Steve Bannon. And yet because he's seen as a supporter of israel he largely gets a pass in a lot of the pro-israel community um and the anti-defamation league as well even though supposedly they're fighting anti-semitism uh when the head of the adl went to jerusalem to see the embassy uh be reopened he was in company with two very right-wing christian very anti-semitic pastors one of whom claims that uh, the only real reason that Jews are around is to allow the apocalypse to come, that you know the ingathering of the Jews to Israel has to happen so that the apocalypse will happen. And who actually said that uh, it wasn't really such a bad thing that Hitler killed so many Jews because really this was just a way of encouraging this apocalypse to come. So how can you say that your organization is really opposed to antisemitism if you actually celebrate anti-Semites? Uh, as long as you see them as supporting the Israeli project.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that we, we've mentioned a lot, and I, I guess we've, we've assumed a lot about our audience, we, we've mentioned the name of the Anti-Defamation League a lot. And it's it's not some small organization. Its executive director is paid upwards of $500,000 a year. It's top 10 to 20 officials are all paid above $200,000 a year. Um, I I won't ask you what JVP and its budget is like, but how are we supposed, I know that there's a campaign addressing the ADL and its relationship with community organizations, its uh, challenges to uh, other communities of color. Can you tell us a little bit about this campaign?
4: Um, So this is actually something that both Lara and I have worked on, and it's called Drop the ADL. And um, this campaign really has been a long time in the development. Many, many anti-racist organizations, um, many LGBTQ organizations, pro-immigration organizations, and of course, Palestinian organizations, were noticing over and over again how often the Anti-Defamation League is on the side opposing local organizing and and opposing anti-racist efforts. And even um, back in the the 70s and 80s, the Anti-Defamation League actually filed a brief uh, supporting Baki and the Baki decision, so opposing affirmative action for African-Americans. Lara has mentioned their long history of spying on the NAACP and uh, various other organizations that, that were protecting civil rights of people of color. Um, So, you know, we felt that it was really important to get this out there because what so often happens, um, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a case in Starbucks of the two African-American men who were kicked out of Starbucks. And so um, the Anti-Defamation League was initially invited in to do this tolerance training to help people get over their racism. And fortunately, there were organizations that in Philadelphia that spoke up and said, you know, we don't really think of the Anti-Defamation League as an ally to people of color. But that's pretty common that if you're, you know, you're running a a small PTA or a local Y and you want to do some sort of training on anti-racism, the ADL is really good at promoting themselves at doing that. And so we felt it was really important for local organizations to understand that despite, as I said, claiming to be a civil rights organization, their primary goal, their primary mission is really Israeli advocacy. And uh, the New Orleans example is a wonderful one. Um, If they feel that Israel is being damaged, their commitment to civil rights evaporates immediately. And in many cases, they have actually attacked local organizing efforts uh, for uh, LGBTQ rights or for immigrant rights or African-American rights uh, because they saw the organizers as not being sufficiently supportive of Israel. So uh, it's called drop the ADL, drop the ADL.org, and I can put it in the chat. Uh, if you go to that, we have a primer that has a lot of details of all of these different um, incidents where the ADL has actually been an enemy to progressive anti-racist organizing.
2: Uh, Laura, could you tell us how the campaign's going?
3: You know, we've been working on this for a couple years now and um, given the level of power that ADL holds in different um, institutional spaces, we wanted to be really cautious about how to you know, really put out this campaign publicly. We didn't want it to target mostly people of color, which is the history of ADL, is that they tend to target Palestinian, black and brown organizations across the country. Um, So early on, we gathered a series of signatures um, that including, you know, national immigrant rights organizations, black liberation organizations, and then local organizations as well. It's going very well. We're already seeing um, ways in which locally and nationally, um, there's become this question of, oh, I didn't know ADL was homophobic, Islamophobic, and racist. Um, had I known, I wouldn't have XYZ, and they're starting to, um, you know, not to, to discard their ties with them. But also, more importantly, which is a tactic that is tried and true by Zionists and other right-wing forces, is, but in particular by ADL, Is you know, as soon as we put this out and it became known that there are all these progressive organizations that have signed on, ADL started making calls, right, to board members, to executive directors, to to different organizations to pressure them to remove their name um from the signature as a signatory of the letter. And I think the most um, hopeful outcome of all of this is no one's removed their name, that everyone has remained committed to challenging this normalization of Islamophobia and racism, even if it means coming up against one of the the most powerful institutions right now in this country. And we knew that early on, as our goal and, and stated in the letter, is that we know that these kinds of attacks and this kind of repression necessitates a collective response. And we're stronger, and all of us are stronger if we respond collectively, which is really the The shaping of the letter, the process we went through, and the outcome itself. So in our assessment, um, it's it's going well. And more importantly, it was meant to be a resource and it's being used as a resource. We want people to be able to point to this when locally their school districts are sending their children home with a a letter signed by ADL, encouraging their young people to participate in an ADL program, Um, or when ADL is trying to partner with their progressive institutions and that they can say, wait a minute, I I have a question mark here. Um, And so that' For us is the most important thing is they can point to a very well-referenced um, researched report that lays it all out there for them.
4: And, and I, would know, out, I, I just want to point out that um, when we started the campaign, we had approximately 100 organizations that signed on and within about a week, we had doubled that.
2: Yeah. Actually, can you just tell us uh, like some of the more prominent organizations that people would recognize their names? For example, the organization I work for signed on, but no one's going to recognize the name. So
3: Um, you can go to drop adl.org I think part of it is we also don't want to tokenize organizations and yeah. in- and center particular organizations. So you can go to the list and see it for yourselves, hundreds of organizations and some of them very prominent, some of them very local. And I think rather than highlight particular ones and to make them the target of any more potential repression, we'd rather really um, hone in on the collective sort of response and support and understanding we have around wanting to challenge this normalization of racism.
2: Thanks for that gentle and necessary correction. So I'd like to turn to the audience. And Joe, do you want to facilitate this conversation? I know that Michael Passerini had some comments in the chat. Yeah,
1: I'm happy to invite uh, Michael, Michael Passerini, to to make a, to offer a question or comment. And I'll just, again, uh, say to everyone, if you haven't seen my notes in the chat box, I would love for you um, to, to indicate that you'd like to speak and we'll call on you too. But we'll let Michael go first. And then I think Victor Wallace also has a few words it will, but let's take Michael's question, and then we'll come. To, we'll come to Victor. Hi. Uh, first, I I'd
5: just like to say regarding um, the the incident in the Newton school systems two years ago. Uh, I just um, refer people to the link I posted uh, in the chat uh, that explains it much better. Um, so, my question is uh, specifically for Leslie and for Lara. I'm wondering because we've been talking about basically. For the most part, um, the left being attacked by um, these right leaning or right wing or ultra right wing Zionists. Basically, it's been sort of right Zionists, conservative Zionists versus us on the left. But I'm wondering about um, when and if and how uh, both of you have dealt with these accusations of anti Semitism from other leftists because that's something that I've observed, you know, in groups like DSA and, and so forth. And that to me is a real problem that also um, that also uh, needs to have some light shone on it. So I'd like to hear your um, response to that, thank you.
4: I think my response is simply, um, we go back to our values at Jewish Voice for Peace, which is that we support freedom and justice and peace for everyone regardless of their ethnicity. And it's really hard for me to see someone who really really presents themselves as being truly leftist to have any objection to that. But I would say that also um, we have seen cases where there are organizations that present themselves as being um, leftist and progressive that are really not. And they're actually sometimes being funded by Zionist organizations. So there's a big uh, controversy in some feminist circles about whether it's possible to be a feminist and to be a Zionist. And there's an organization that sprang up recently called Zioness uh, that is uh, supposedly a pro-Israel but pro-feminist organization. And it's actually funded largely by uh, Zionist organizations. So it's an organization that was specifically developed to be a Zionist response to criticisms of how uh, progressivism really doesn't have space for Zionism in it. And we often find that um, there, there are these cases of pink washing are, is another example where uh, you have organizations that point to Israel's wonderful attitude towards gay people. And isn't it great that you can go to Tel Aviv and have this really wonderful time in gay bars Uh, but not looking at ways in which um, there are Israeli educational efforts to actually subvert gay rights, uh, both in Israel, but also on campuses in the United States. So I think a lot of the time, this supposed leftist uh, accusation of anti-Semitism is um, actually a blind and not really coming from truly progressive organizations.
3: Yeah, and I would just say for us, you know, as an Arab and Palestinian led organization, we find it inherently Islamophobic and racist for anyone to claim we're anti Semitic by virtue of us fighting for the liberation of our people. Um, so ultimately, that is our task at hand is it's, you know, we are not about criticizing Israel. That's not our mission in life, <laughs> nor is, you know, challenging apartheid and racism. Our mission is liberation and the well-being of our people. And if that means we're being anti-Semitic because I'm Palestinian or my, you know, my colleague is, is Arab or Muslim or an immigrant, um, then, you know, really, we, we put to question that that in, in of itself is Islamophobic. And yes, just to answer your question more directly, we have had those claims um, definitely waged at us, but not necessarily by leftists, um, but by, by what would be considered progressive is um, Jewish institutions like ADL. Um, And so, you know, and I think that's why the ADL campaign is so important. They're not not deemed a right-wing Zionist organization. They're much more, they're seen as either mainstream or even very progressive. And it's really on us to decouple them from the left and progressive spaces because we know their work and their priority and agenda is to delegitimize Palestinian solidarity. And by virtue of being in solidarity with Palestine, Um, to claim that that makes you anti-Semitic, I think that in of itself speaks to the person making the claim. Um, And so rather than defend ourselves, it's very clear to us that's racist and Islamophobic, and we don't feel that warrants a response.
1: Very interesting. Uh, Victor Wallace, I believe, has a a brief note
6: to share. Yeah, uh, Actually, I have a a few comments. Um, I'm actually myself a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, and I want to express my great appreciation for the work that both of you are doing. I think it's extremely important. One thing i mentioned is a a film by uh, Yoav Shamir made a few years ago called Anti-Defamation. I don't know if you're familiar with that, which was very, he's a humorous uh, and uh, perceptive uh, Israeli filmmaker. Uh, Another thing, uh, one of the things that strikes me as a kind of more, even more extreme example of what you say about ADL is the the relationship of, uh, the Israeli state even to to Ukraine and uh, where the 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 support of, of Nazis in that kind of situation I mean it's so over the top so extreme that they're directly supporting I mean you made the point gen, in general terms but uh, they're actually uh, supporting uh, uh, viciously anti-semitic forces uh, in in that country uh, the other the other question I would have just um, in, in case you have some observations about it is um, I have a lot of relatives in, in France and they, they have said been saying for a long time that uh, they find the situation for Jews in France uh, getting a lot worse, perhaps more so even uh, than in the United States. And so I don't know if you, any of you have any, either of you have any comments on that, but thank you again for your uh, comments and for your work. Sure, um,
4: so I used to live in France um, One of the things that we found very disturbing about that situation, and I think this also speaks to what you're saying about the Ukraine, is that Israel kind of encourages people to um, feel this anxiety about living in other countries. And so when there were those really terrible anti-Semitic attacks on French citizens a few years ago, uh, the Israeli government was right there saying, you see, we told you Israel is the only place you're going to be safe. You know, you should really move to Israel. That's the only way that you're going to, you're going to protect yourself from this. And it becomes this narrative instead of looking at um, what do we need to do to work together as societies to stop this trend of fascism, to stop this white supremacy, to stop this anti semitism. it becomes, no, 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 that's never going to work. The only way we can do this is for you to come to this enclose ethno state and wall yourself off from the, from the rest of the world. That's the only way that you're going to protect yourself. And so Israel really exploits legitimate fears of anti semitism to support its own colonial project as Lara said.
2: Lara, did you want to respond to uh, some of the comments you've had and questions from Victor?
3: Well, just to say that i think one of the you know you know we have arab jewish members and leadership in our organization and i think that also gets invisibilized in a lot of this and that absolutely you know anti-semitism racism islamophobia white supremacy is real globally with authoritarian authoritarianism at the ri- on the rise but you know one of the biggest things that uh, you know, outcomes out of this normalization of Zionism globally and in the United States, it does a disservice to those who are facing real anti-Semitism, right? Um, and that, that gets lost in the conversation because absolutely we know that that is happening everywhere. And we know that this is part and parcel of the project of white nationalism and supremacy. And we understand that this is something we all have to tackle collectively. But the more we normalize this idea of Zionism as ref- a representation of the Jewish people, the more of a disservice it does to jewish people arab jews included other you know black jews and other jews included and i think it's necessary for us to take on this task because as anti-racists we are all deeply committed to anti-racism on, on all levels and it's our work to make sure to identify that and to challenge that but when you have these these organizations that are really tasked at normalizing racism on the one hand and exploiting Racism on the other, you know, what is what is our role as progressives in making sure to distinguish between the two?
2: Makes sense. I I would also like to follow up a bit on something that uh, flows from Victor. Um, in addition to the rise, of course, of anti-Semitism in France, anti-Arabism and Islamophobia is quite powerful there. With France having very aggressively reasserted its old colonial role in places most recently like Lebanon, but also um, in Libya. Uh, Have have members of your community spoken about this uh, to any degree or is California too far removed from that side of the Atlantic?
3: California is not too far removed. In fact, right here in California we have our community members who get their hijab pulled off on their way to the bus. We have young kids who are spit on on their way to school, Arab and Muslim kids. We have kids being told by their teachers, what's your name? Is it terrorist, you know, as a joke? Um, You know, the, the fact of the matter is we're living in a climate where we are you know, we're tasked with really stepping up our game and challenging racism in ways we haven't had to do in a minute, not to say that racism hasn't existed historically in this country since its inception, but that also, um, it's become so normalized because of the grotesque nature of violence and white supremacy globally that it starts to create a different threshold for even on the local level, like a Bay, like the Bay Area, right, in this progressive area of the country or California, which is understood as a sanctuary state where immigrants and not just, you know, Arab, but immigrants in general are attacked on the regular black people are still shot by police I mean this is not to say that this is only happening outside of the United States um, and I think as internationalists we should understand the relationships between authoritarian regimes and governments all across the world and our task to as internationals to be in solidarity but really when we're here in the United States very much it's, it's for us at least our understanding is our role is to Challenge the role of the United States globally in both normalizing this, and also in, in its violence, its direct violence against people of color and oppressed people around the world, and in and actually and actually equipping um, governments across the world to do this right, and, and so. It's, you know, I I would say that right now, also the fact that we are at a 2020 election year, we have Trump in office, that imagining another four years of this and what that would mean, not only for the US, for the world, is also a question we are all, you know, challenged with and that we have to, to be ready and prepared for whatever it means in terms of who is elected, but also recognizing that the rise of white supremacy and authoritarianism and fascism, as not just a result of the Trump, um, you know, the Trump government, but in, in as the rise in, in general over the last several years is something that we have to take up as a task as well. And I think Zionism falls within that. Like what's possible if we actually understand the connections and relationships between fascism, between white supremacy, between Zionism, between white nationalism, between anti-Semitism and US imperialism. So much would be made possible around our solidarities, but also our strategies and our political commitments so that we could undo these projects so that we could actually build a different future.
2: You know, what what I find inspiring in in listening to you and Leslie, uh, as well as the questions that we've gotten is that, the world seems clearer after talking with you. There's there's more clarity about the nature of society, the dynamics and what's what's at play here. When we look at California, and I lived in California for 14 years, right? uh, I I feel it's a profoundly more hopeful place than it was when I lived there in the 1990s. And one one of the reasons was this large turnaround that happened in the midst of a right-wing assault with Proposition 187 in the early 1990s, where even Latino political opinion at the beginning of that campaign was two thirds in favor of an anti-immigrant proposal. And then because of real organizing, it flipped those numbers in the opposite direction. So that two thirds of the Latinx community voted against Proposition 187. And that seemed to symbolize a larger project, which I, I would argue is really a social democratic kind of project in California how do you see increased literacy, increased sophistication about the impact of Zionist uh, politics on the broader social movements? How do you see that uh, impacted by this larger awakening that seems to be happening in California and may also predict what's happening, what will happen in the rest of the country?
3: Well, just to say I didn't mean to sound like a pessimist about California earlier to name that you know we are up against the same systems of oppression as every other state and every other, you know across the world and across this country but at the at also and we have very beautiful deep solidarity movements here in the bay area and across the state of california built on decades of internationalism and third world solidarity and um what you described is is one outcome of that in addition to things like stop urban shield which a was a part of and helped lead a a coalition to put an end to the largest militarization training in the world happening here in the bay area that brought israel to train law enforcement and emergency responders and Early on, we didn't think we could put an end to this thing. It was massive. We were going up against the sheriff and the police and Israel. But it was because of the solidarity between so many different communities who all understood themselves as connected, have shared fates, but also having shared adversaries. And so we had to collectively understand how to take that up as. Um, As a as an organizing task and we won right and I think there are multiple examples of that here in the Bay Area where there are deep there's deep solidarity amongst our communities that is extremely helpful And the ethnic studies campaign is another. We are up against pro Israeli interest groups, the California Department of Education, who at one point said no way in hell we're including Arab American studies, it's a done deal. And because of our solidarity, although they tried to divide and conquer us between all the different studies of ethnic studies, the different groups, they called them. um, They tried to divide and conquer that. Oh, adding Arab American studies would take away from your studies and adding them will take away from you. And so we gotta maintain us the original four groups. And really we built solidarity amongst all groups where everyone said, yes to Arab American studies, because an attack on Arab American studies an attack on Palestine is an attack on ethnic studies. That became the new discourse, right? And so I think that is what's possible in this moment. And on a national level, seeing Movement for Black Lives putting demands around anti-militarism and anti-policing, defunding police and also understanding the military budget, right? So not disconnecting those two things. This is all a testament to the work on the ground, to grassroots organizers, to the labor that is unseen and unrecognized on a daily basis that is making it possible for us to see the normalization of demands of defunding police, the normalization of questions around militarization and policing and those connections, questioning the military industrial complex as we question the prison industrial complex. This is all This is all something for us to draw a lot of inspiration from, but to also know that that is a result of grassroots organizing, decades of work on the ground of movement building and connections and relationship buildings between communities. And that's what made possible what we have today. And we really have to invest in that even more today in order to make that possible for us to realize real change as a result of these demands and these commitments that we're seeing um, really come up across the country.
4: And uh, also just wanted to throw in that there is a very long history of African-American solidarity with Palestinians Uh, You know, unfortunately, there is a narrative that, you know, there was this great Black Jewish alliance in the 60s and it all fell apart after Martin Luther King died. And that's just really not true. Um, If you look at just about all of the other well-known activists at the time, so Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X and the Black Arts Movement, they all saw their struggle as a global struggle against colonialism, as a global struggle of third world people against European colonialists. And to them, it was very obvious that what was going on in Palestine was another example of European colonialism over people of color. And uh, that history has been, been somewhat intentionally erased, I think, in the decades since then. And also, you know, Laura was mentioning Black Lives Matter. It's not a coincidence that when the Movement for Black Lives came out with their platform a few years ago Almost every major Jewish organization in the country slammed it and accused it of being anti-Semitic because it called out apartheid and it called out de facto genocide of the Palestinian people. Um, and so this is not this is not something new. I mean, we we have a history of working together on this.
2: You know, thank you for those examples of concrete organizing that can be done by people to to build cross ethnic solidarity cross national solidarity in 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 real and and practical ways. Uh, One of the terms that popped up was invisible Labor well our host Joe Ramsey has been doing some invisible Labor coordinating some questions and he has one to ask about Jeremy Corbyn. Joe.
1: Yes, I do, um, and it actually comes from um, from Wyman Chen, who's who's uh, on the call, but w- I wanted me to ask the question, uh, and so I will relay it as best I can. He'd like to know uh, about the targeting of uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, you know, as the accusations of anti-Semitism there, how that played out. Your, any thoughts you have on on that particular attack, and also perhaps uh, implications uh, for thinking ahead about uh, likely the sorts of attacks that may be faced by other left candidates, you know, here in the United States or, or beyond.
4: Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm not gonna pretend to know a whole lot about specifics of the Labor Party, but in terms of the accusation of, accusations of antisemitism against Corbyn and really against pretty much any progressive politician, Um, There is uh, a definition of anti-Semitism that's been promulgated a lot since 2016. And it's generally known as the International Holocaust Remembrance uh, Remembrance Association definition. Um, It's the basis of the State Department definition of anti-Semitism here in the United States. And it has also been used in the United Kingdom uh, frequently as an excuse for attacking Corbyn and for the Labor Party in general. And what's dangerous about it is, it doesn't just talk about attacks on Jews, it specifically uses as examples, denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination and denying Israel the right to exist. So if your organization or your party or your country has adopted this definition, it's essentially making criticism of Israel and making work for Palestinian rights illegal. And um, this was originally developed with um, the European monitoring system on racism and xenophobia. Many, many countries have adopted it in, in all or in part, and it is in use in the United Kingdom. And we are seeing cases of organizations, sometimes individual student groups, sometimes individual towns, uh, trying to do some sort of activity on Palestinian support, or in some cases just um, awareness of Palestinian issues, and being told that this is illegal because of this International Holocaust Remembrance Association definition of anti-Semitism. Um, you know, from the little that I know about British politics, um, I think it's fair to say that there has there has been a strong strand of anti-Semitism in the UK in general, but not necessarily just on the left. And I think it's worth remembering that when the ball for decoration was passed back in 1917, which created the idea of this national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, the one Jewish member of the cabinet, Edward Montague, pushed back against it. And he said, this is really something that the anti-Semites of Europe are going to use to kick all of the Jews out of Europe. So he saw what was going to happen, that uh, antisemitism was going to be used as a weapon, not just against Palestinians, but was also gonna be used as a weapon to say, you have a national home in Palestine, so you no longer have nationality in Europe. And that is to an extent what happened. Um, But the IHRA definition um, is doing a lot of damage to suppress Palestinian student activism. It was the justification for canceling a class on Palestine as colonialism in California recently. Uh, And it's being, unfortunately, it's been adopted by many, many countries in Europe. And so I think that is something that uh, we really need to be working against. Uh, One of the things I posted in the chat, there is um, a website from Independent Jewish Voices in Canada, the no IHRA site, which has a lot of great background on how this definition of antisemitism is being used to shut down any type of
2: Palestinian organizing. Leslie, you know, um, early on in the primaries, it seemed like a similar move was gonna be put on uh, Bernie. And it it certainly began that way, but it it sort of went out with a whimper. Do you you have any theory as to why that happened? Why they couldn't label the first major Jewish candidate an anti-Semite?
4: Well, for one thing, Bernie presented himself as being a progressive Zionist, but he did actually describe himself as a Zionist. So I think that was part of the reason. Um, it's obviously harder to target somebody as anti-Semitic if, if they're actually Jewish, although not impossible uh, because Peter, Peter Beinart, when he came out with his, uh, his op-ed a, a few months ago in which he suggested that uh, it should simply be a binational state with equal rights for everyone. What a radical idea. Um, He was immediately accused of playing into the hands of anti-Semites, and uh, George Soros has both been a target of anti-Semitism, but has actually been accused of encouraging anti-Semitism. Natalie Portman, who for a long time was the American poster child for Israel, when she refused to accept an award from Netanyahu because of what was going on in the occupied territories, she began to be demonized as anti-Semitic. So yes, it is possible to do that even for someone Jewish, but I think it is partly that uh, Bernie has never actually come out as saying he is opposed to Zionism, that he's simply a progressive Zionist. Um, but you know, the way things stand now with the Democratic Party, uh, almost all of the major leaders in the Democratic Party speak at the AIPAC conference regularly. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has actually said something along the lines of, you know, the apocalypse would have to come before there would be any separation of the U.S. Democratic Party and supporting Israel. So it's pretty clear there's not going to be any progress coming from that area. And Biden, um, Biden is actually more to the right about supporting Israel than many Republicans, uh, which is another very disturbing development. I shouldn't say development because it's always been that way.
2: So Nancy Pelosi, she's in your neck of the woods, Lara, right? How have you had to deal with Nancy Pelosi's politics?
3: Um, You know, she is in our neck of the woods. Um, We have definitely challenged her in her foreign policy positions, in particular as it relates to Palestine and war. Um, So we have definitely advocated and worked with JVP locally to to do some of that advocacy work, Um, in addition to her policies on immigration. um, So Nancy Pelosi is um, seen as somebody who has definitely not stood on the right side of history on a number of progressive issues and for locally in the Bay Area, um, has been challenged by undocumented organizations and communities has been challenged by anti war activists, Palestinians, um, and by um, People trying to work against the violence of police. Um, that being said, um, you know, we continue, we know that she's a big player on a national level. And so it is our role to do what we can here in the Bay Area to push her as constituents, and we will continue to do so.
2: Great, great. Um, I know that Joey's interested in learning a bit more about the elections, and we've sort of gotten onto that track, a bit different from our original topic, but How do you all see, um, and I know Leslie began the work of pushing us this way, Uh, how do you see the elections playing out then, given Biden's um, pro-Israel stances, and do you see at least an improvement in terms of the domestic environment uh, with respect to issues like Islamophobia, should Biden be elected, or do we have you know, pretty much the same amount of work to do uh, as if Trump was still in power.
4: I mean, I certainly don't think things are going to get much more progressive under a a Biden presidency. Um, You know, not just because of issues related to Israel and Islamophobia, but many of the other things that Laura's been been mentioning. Uh, You know, it's not a coincidence that Kamala Harris uh, initially came to prominence as a prosecutor Um, But what I think we've been trying to do, Jewish Voice for Peace, I should mention, we now have a 501C4, um, a political um, arm, which does work on electoral politics, which is what allows me to talk about this as a representative of Jewish Voice for Peace Action, or 501C4. And our strategy has been to um, support people that are already our champions. So we've endorsed Ilhan Omar and the rest of the squad, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, um, also Mark Pocan and Betty McCollum. Uh, Betty McCollum is the uh, first and I believe only person who's ever introduced legislation about Palestinian rights into Congress. Um, but we're also looking at insurgents in a lot of um, smaller congressional races that are working with multiracial coalitions and are open to um, stepping away from the Democratic Party's orthodoxy on Israel. And so I think that's a really hopeful sign. And you know, I think a lot of these younger candidates are seeing that people that are truly progressive do see Palestine as a progressive, progressive issue. Um, this is a local example, but in Illinois uh, we had a progressive um, candidate, Daniel Biss, who was uh, running for governor. And his uh, running mate um, is someone who was very supportive of Palestine and it said that he was supportive of BDS. And so he very publicly renounced his running mate saying that you know his Jewish grandparents who had been in the Holocaust would be horrified to know that he was running with someone who supported BDS. And he was shocked, shocked, shocked to find that his progressive running mate supported BDS in Palestine, and it really backfired on him. Um, He lost a lot of his progressive support and he ended up dropping out of the race pretty quickly after that. So I think people are beginning to realize that if you truly want to tap into progressive power in politics, you can't keep playing this game of being progressive except for Palestine. Makes
2: sense.
3: I would just add that I do think, um, you know, while Palestine is central to my identity and my politics and the liberation of Palestine and anti-imperialism is as a concept also is important for all of our work. Um, It doesn't mean, so yes, I won't see Biden as, you know, liberating Palestine. I don't think any candidate or democratic party will, but I would say that it would be extremely different for frontline communities in the United States if Trump gets elected for another four years. And there's work for us to consider around what that would mean and the repercussions of that for all people around the world. And so what would be an opening? And that's the question we are in wrestling with. What kind of opening does um, a democratic candidate um, allow for us to enter into, to produce more organizing, to build more power and create a real left so that we aren't here again? Um, But I would say that for for, for Trumper to get elected again, I'd be the first to say it'd be very different than a democratic candidate getting elected again.
2: Makes sense. You know, we, we've been talking for about 90 minutes with a, a, a really uh, fact-filled conversation. Many different links were shared in the chat, lots of resources to to use and to to continue our organizing work. I know that there are a, a few more questions and comments So we're gonna I uh, beg you to stay with us a little longer. Joe, you had uh, someone who wanted to ask a question? Yes,
1: I do, sren thank you. Uh, and again, thanks uh, to Leslie and, and Lara for this great conversation and sren as well. Uh, we I understand we have a brief comment or question from Michael Passerini, a little follow-up. I know he follows this particular issue quite closely. And then I have just a brief uh, question I'd like to put to our, to our guests. Michael?
5: Hi, um, so, I've never been to the UK and this is all by proxy for me, just following the situation, following the politics there and the cultural trends and and knowing the history to an extent. Um, But uh, just regarding anti-Semitism in the UK, um, that's something, that's another issue that I guess it perplexes me a little because, People familiar with the culture in the United Kingdom, especially in England, know that um, much like in the United States, you know, Ashkenazi Jews really did, to a large extent, assimilate into that culture and become very prominent in entertainment and industry and, you know, commerce and so forth, very much like the United States. And also, in addition to having, you know, a large, uh, like, uh, second, I, I call it secular Jewish population. I know that's not the correct term, but everyone knows what I mean, non-practicing or whatever the correct term is. You know, with London is very much like New York in that it has these neighborhoods like Golders Green and East Finchley and Stoke Newington and Stamford Hill, which are big Hasidic and observant Jewish neighborhoods. And And then also just regarding the whole Labour Party anti-Semitism issue, the Labour Party has half a million people. And then oftentimes when people would bring up the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, they'd point to a few thousand crazy people posting some, some conspiracy theory tweets. So that's just a comment. I'm not attacking anyone or going after anyone, but that's just a comment I wanted to make. I thought it was relevant. Thanks.
4: Yeah. So like I said, I don't consider myself at all to be an expert on UK politics. I would say from what I know, um, you mentioned how, you know, how polyglot and polyethnic London is, but you know, I think London is sort of an outlier. I don't think that really represents the whole country. And you know, the, the Brexit vote is kind of an example of that. Uh, there has been a strong, once again, our old friends, white supremacy uh, fascism, fear of the other, xenophobia, fear of dark people, fear of Muslim people. And I think that that has ratcheted up this kind of latent anti-Semitism that has been part of English society for quite a long time.
1: Thanks for that, Michael, and thanks, Leslie. My comment, actually, question is is kind of the, the classic uh, closing question, which is, in addition to all the great resources you've mentioned and the links in the chat box, Um, what would you spotlight as we move towards closing um, something that people could do or perhaps a concept that people could take as a tool with them as they move forward some language that hasn't been offered yet or perhaps a resource a campaign um, an action that you like to point people to we have many people on on this call and who watch our show who are engaged in organizing and from unions to to uh, other sorts of activist groups and community organizations, as well as just informal social networks. So I'm just wondering if there's anything that you, you either of you or both of you would like to spotlight, um, either as kind of parting words of wisdom uh, or w- words of orientation, or, or, or a concrete ask or, or action that, that is ongoing that maybe may have been lost in our very rich conversation otherwise.
4: Um, so I mentioned a couple of things. Uh, someone put put in the link for the deadly exchange campaign. I would love it if people would take a look at that. Uh, Laura and I have both talked about drop the ADL and uh, just the richness of resources that are in that primer. I think in terms of just an overall point to remember is that um, we feel that we're holding Israel to the same standards that we feel we hold all countries and societies to, which is basic respect for human rights and not basing one's legal rights or social rights on ethnicity or religion. And whenever people, people ask me about, well, aren't you worried about anti-Semitism? I always ask, well, why aren't you concerned about anti-Palestinianism? And why is it that the Palestinian human rights situation is so often swept under the table or pushed aside when uh, we're making these alliances, when we're making these platforms, like the the party platforms. And uh, so as I said, Palestine is a progressive issue in the same way that anti-colonialism and anti-racism is a progressive issue. And so I would ask that all of us who are in progressive coalitions insist on that being part of your coalitions and part of your solidarity work and that you don't let uh, pressure from the outside uh, drive that away.
1: Thank you. Yeah, Laura?
3: Um, I also put in the chat the savearabamericanstudies.org website which is the website for our coalition around ethnic studies in California. We see this as a pretty Um, significant fight, not just for California, but also has implications for the rest of the country, um, for people trying to also advance ethnic studies programs in their cities, counties, and states. Um, So definitely check that out for updates on any action items there. I would just end by saying, you know, for us, the question of Palestine and Palestinian solidarity isn't to add it to your list of things you care about, but to really understand that we are all connected and that um, when you take on, and we don't need you to take on another activity, we don't need you to join another organization. Um, you also don't have to create a new coalition for Palestine is that you can integrate the politics of solidarity around Palestine and anti-Zionism and everything you do. Um, and to really be able to identify places where there's attempts to undermine Palestinian solidarity in your own work and challenge that and feel courageous enough to challenge that. And if you don't feel like you have the tools to do so, to reach out to some of us who have experienced that. Um, for some time now we can offer you those tools like Pal Legal um, and also drop the ADL.org which we're documenting cases of places where black and brown organizations and communities of color across the country have been targeted by Zionists. So really we uh, in order to be in solidarity, it's really to be in collective community and to understand our collective humanity um, and to not undermine one community for the sake of your own. So I know when we do any work around the Arab and Muslim community, including when we do work around policing and militarization, we ensure that nothing we do is actually undermining the demands and the needs um, of black other black communities of other oppressed communities who are also at the receiving end of that and are actually facing the brunt of that. Um, and that's all we ask, right? So for solidarity with Palestine, find ways that you can integrate it in everything you do um, because to understand ourselves as part of an international community who have stakes in this fight collectively to undo racism and imperialism and militarism because really our lives are, are on, on the, at stake for, for all of us and our, and our young people in the futures. and this year more than ever has proven that for us.
1: Thank you both very much. Siren, closing thoughts?
2: You know, I'll only say that I learned a lot tonight, and um, look forward to continuing the conversation. There were some topics that we did not get to address that I felt were important, including how the work on the ground relates to actual communities. There were there were really provocative uh leads to that and it, it would have been great if we could gone for another 90 minutes to explore that but i'm, I'm really grateful so thank you laura thank you leslie joe do you want to tell people about our upcoming shows and
1: sure i'm happy to wrap up just echoing siren's uh, thanks to laura and and to leslie and to all of you for joining us here on this on this september evening um here as is, is shelter and solidarity moves into our twice a month Uh, mode for the foreseeable. Uh, As our next show will be on October 1st, we'll stick with Thursday evenings, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. October 1st, we have, and October 15th, we have, I think, two really potentially very powerful uh, shows building on our, the internationalism and the anti-imperialism that has been showcased today. On October 1st, we have a show on mass murder in the making of our times. We will be uh, commemorating and deep diving into the history of US imperialism and particularly starting with but not limited to Indonesia on the I believe 55th anniversary of the anti communist massacres of 1965 and 1966 we will be joined by john Rusa the author of Buried Histories, the Anti-Communist Massacres of 1965 to 1960 in Indonesia, a book upon which the, the acclaimed film, The Act of Killing, was in part based. We will also be privileged to host Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method, a book about the way in which U.S. imperial hegemony and repression kind of cut its teeth and developed its forms in the Indonesian model, which was rolled out in many other places. We'll also be joined by... Uh, S- 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 I'm sorry, Sritika Varagar, uh, journalist and author of, of, of a number of works who has done some work on Indonesia. And we will be, as, as Saran has, has led today's discussion, uh, has led hosting it, we will be joined by Joseph Nevins, uh, author, co-author of A People's Guide to Greater Boston, as well as A Not-So-Distant Horror, Mass Violence in East Timor. That's on October 1st. On October 15th, two weeks later, we will be joined by Uh, 2020 Pulitzer Prize winning author Greg Grandin, author of many works including the Pulitzer Prize winning The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. and He will be joined in conversation by Avi Chomsky, author of of a number of very important books in dealing with US uh, US political economy, global political economy, US imperialism and immigration in particular. Her book, uh, Book's uh, Undocumented and They Take Our Jobs and 20 Other Myths About Immigration are must-reads and uh, we will be delving into the issue of border walls uh, and the crisis of American empire as we approach this this crazy election in a a few weeks after that. So I hope that many of you who are here today will join us um, in, in in a week's time for our October 1st show and come back in two weeks for Greg Grandin and Avi Chomsky our conversations are richer for your presence. And as we always say here on Shelter and Solidarity, stay safe, stay together, and stay engaged. Thanks for being here. Power to the people.